Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Alves, kicking things off for us tonight. Coconut Elixir, great track off of the album by Toronto sci-fi pop artist Sappho. The album's called Magrathea. Got another single for you from another Canadian artist, some yacht rock, to get you a little bit in the mood for Begonia. Not that she's yacht rock, but uh, there's some throwback vibes to Powder Blue. Uh, I talked to Alexa about her forthcoming two-night stint at Club Regent. Uh, coming up later in the show, 
jazz legend Matthew Shipp, who has a new release and a reissue out today, and the band Wayfinding, who are coming to town to open for Destroyer on the 25th. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. This is Kayla Williams with Come Close. Well, no surprise for someone who uh, had a song called Married by Elvis that her next two dates are at a casino. We've got 
Alexa Dirks, a.k.a. Begonia, here to talk about Powder Blue and about her two-night stint at Club Regent. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So we didn't get to talk when this record came out, so I do want to kind of talk about the genesis of the record and a little bit behind it. But before that, let's talk about playing at a casino. Is this, I mean, have you gone to many shows at Club Regent? I'm, I'm trying to think, like, I saw the box tops when they did, like, a reunion show at the club region, but that, I, I don't, I don't go to a ton of shows at, at the casino. Yeah. I feel like maybe that's generally the vibe. I also have never been to a show there. And when my management brought it up, it's like, we should do it at the casino. I was like, I love this idea. <laughs> it felt like just something a bit different. And, and I mean, it's like, it's, you don't care for gambling or don't want you don't gotta like the venue in and of itself is kind of it's like separate and it's a state-of-the-art like venue and i know that they've put a lot of muscle and work into making it that way so i'm just excited to kind of try out a different venue that i've never set foot in i've never played do you have plans to kind of change up your your stage show and, and kind of like how you arrange your your players and stuff for this venue like is that something yeah. you consider yeah. Oh, definitely. And depending on the size of the stage and like what we can do. And I work with my partner, who's also kind of my set designer, creative person, Seth Woodyard. So then he kind of conceptualizes the stage setup, and then I'm like, okay, but these are the instruments I want. So usually on tour and for most shows, we keep it pretty light and tight. It's me, keyboard player, bass player, and drummer. But for this, I'm getting two backup singers. I'm going to have a violin player and a cello kind of just expanding a little bit to to do those things that I feel like I can only really do at home like bring the people in that I want to bring in and uh I absolutely can't afford to take this show on the road mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so I really indulge in being in Winnipeg and trying to make it the biggest and best shows that I can possibly put together because it's a time where I can do things that I I can't normally do yeah, like the financial constraints of things. I was just talking to a, a a jazz pianist who said, you know, he basically formed a trio because the group that he wanted to record with, he couldn't financially make work on yeah. on the road, and that that becomes a decision. How much does that impact then, like when you're you know keeping it tight on the road, being able to recreate what's on the record, and is that something you give a thought to? Yeah, I mean, for my first record, Fear, that was way more of something that I thought about in studio. Even though we still got expansive with some of the production, I was really more so thinking, okay, how is this gonna translate live? What is kind of the, like if we don't have strings, maybe we shouldn't go for it with the strings on this record. But then with Powder Blue, we were making it, and, and while we were making it, it was during a time of lockdowns where I was like, I don't even know, I don't even know what touring's gonna be. I don't know what any of this is gonna be like when the, dust kind of settles a little bit more and the lockdowns are over. So I was like, I just want to indulge it in making a record with all the bells and whistles. It's still kind of considering it, but just really indulging in like lush orchestration and things that perhaps wouldn't be taken on the road with me. But I know the band that I play with too are very like conscientious with that, like Graham Lieber, the keyboard player, like thinks about that kind of stuff and how he can translate things onto his instrument. And then it's fun too, because uh, I used to see that more as like a barrier if we can't play it exactly how it is on the record. But now I, I feel like it's kind of like a fun 
takeaway in a way because you listen to the record, you get the songs in a specific way, and then you see a show, and and they're pretty close to the record, but you get a, a different kind of energy, and I like that you get different takes, however you hear it or take it in, and I kind of like playing with that. So on fear, then was it a more cautious form of songwriting, knowing this is going to be on the road. I have to kind of like, I, I want to be able to recreate it versus like, I don't know what is going to live beyond the record for powder blue. I might as well throw everything at it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of more what it felt like because making fear. Yeah. And also making fear. I had no reference point for like making a record like that and doing it in that capacity as a solo artist. I, I had made an EP earlier, but that was a very quick process like lady in mind EP and it was kind of like just throw whatever we have at the wall and those are the five songs we have and that's all we have and then with fear it was like okay I've never made a full-length record before like this so I didn't really have a reference point and then with powder blue it felt like okay I've done it a couple different ways now let's try it uh where we just don't think as hard so is it writing more from a place of like emotion and heart than head when you say don't oh, think yeah. as hard Oh yeah, and that's always kind of a thing for me. And that's why it's fun to collaborate because I feel like I come at songwriting and, and writing my songs from a very emotionally connected place and even connection with the sounds and stuff that like, if I feel it kind of like in my gut, because I'm not a very scholastic person. I, I don't really know how to read music that well. Like that's not kind of where I come at music from, but then I work with my producers and, and co-writers uh, dead mats who are Matt Schellenberg and Matt Peters from the band Royal Canoe. And they come at it from a totally different mindset songwriting. They, they still have emotional pulls, but they're definitely more the zeros and ones are kind of going in their brain a little bit more. And, and they have a bit more scholastic training. They come from just like different backgrounds. So then I feel like the, the melding of that, like the, that together kind of makes a, a nice soup, a so nice pie. When you collaborate on a song, what is that process like? Like, do you bring them lyrics? Do you have like a melody? Like where, where's the kind of start of the collaborative thing between the three of you? I mean, for me, like when I'm gathering material, I'm, I'm always kind of like gathering material, I guess, in my life without knowing it, journaling, making voice notes on my phone. Like when we're out of kind of like the writing mode, I feel like I'm always just kind of collecting little bits of ideas and trying not to judge them too hard. And then when we get together, which is usually pretty intentional and especially now because they live in LA now, the mats, but when we would get together before we'd have like writing intensive times where it'd be like, okay, we're going to go to a cabin. We're going to go, we're going to set up my living room uh, into a studio and we're going to work for like a week and we're going to do like writing intensive. So then I would come to the table with some melody ideas. They would come to the table with like, hey, here's a loop that I made of this production stuff. Does that resonate with you at all? And I'd sit there and try to write over it. Or we'd sit there with a guitar and I'd be like, okay, I hear this note, play that note <laughs> or whatever. So it, it depending on the song, uh, the uh, birth of them all start a little bit differently. So let's talk about Married by Elvis, just because it is my favorite song. And honestly, like, I know you're up for the Players Prize for the record. If I could give the Players Prize to a single song, it would be You're Married by Elvis. I think there's so <laughs> much going on in that song. Uh, and just I, I want to kind of break down the like the genesis of that song, right? Like, because there's 
like you're you're alone for a little bit and then like this like orchestration kind of comes in and then you've got like those ghost vocals like ooing in the back and stuff and it just builds and it keeps building and and i'm curious about like the decision making that went into that like construction yeah I guess we really leaned into our perception of like that old Hollywood kind of sound, like with the movies and like the fifties and stuff with the background singers that you can really hear the vibrato and kind of the lushness and with the string parts kind of intertwining in there. And, but then brought in the modern sound of like the guitar is not just like a played through part. It's a sampled uh, acoustic guitar riff that is just played on the keyboard. So it's like, bringing in some of those modern kind of computer nerd ideas into this old Hollywood kind of sound that felt like it fit in with thematically what the song was about, which was like love and I guess uh, old school kind of absurd love. And and I guess Elvis, but more so the Elvis representation is just like the, the things that you do for love when you're so in it that you don't even care how ridiculous it is. You just go for it. And maybe the, like the representation of like, like you were saying, like those fifties, like maybe like those Elvis movies. Yes, like, exactly. It, it could fit on a soundtrack with that. Vibrato, yeah. And like right? the, the like Henry Mancini kind of string energy and that kind of like lushness is what we really were uh, tapping into with that one for sure. Did you listen to stuff from, from that era to kind of get a sense of like what you were hoping to achieve? A little bit, but at the time, I think that Matt Peters had been listening to a lot of like Henry Mancini kind of stuff, like soundtracky stuff. And so it was just kind of something that was already like a pool, a well that they had been thinking about or tapping into. So then we were like, oh my gosh, it fits perfectly for this song. And and this song, it was like, they played me a little bit of that riff. Dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. And then I was like, oh, and then it all just happened so quickly. And that doesn't always happen with songwriting where it feels like something just kind of spills out of you. And and when, when it does, you try not to question it too much. And at first I was a bit self-conscious of the song because I felt like, oh, maybe it's like too cheesy or like too lovey because I'm not generally a person that puts those kinds of sentiments out there in that way. But I mean, it is a part of me to be kind of cheesy, to be kind of lovey, like that is a part of who I am as well. So when it came down to it, I was trying to, and also in the same way where it's like, we're in lockdown trying to make this record. And I was just trying to let go of all these preconceived notions of who people think I am or who I have to be or how serious I need to be or how, uh, yeah, like the subject matter can be just exactly what it is. And I was trying not to judge it or question it. So then this song kind of was a very pure expression. You said that it kind of just spilled out when you have to draw something out. What do you have to go through to like make something work? I mean, I, I go through journal entries. I go through no, the notes app on my phone. I go through the voice notes that I make. Cause you never know sometimes when you're just like doing the dishes or in the shower and you have a little melody, hum it into your phone. You never know later on sometimes when you are mining through your stuff, those are the ideas that come through like months later. And you're like, ah, now I understand what I was trying to do there. I didn't at the time, but that's what I'm always like. So encouraging when I are encouraging of that idea, when I talk to other songwriters or if people ever ask me like how to 
how do you songwrite? It's like, you just don't try not to judge anything and you don't have to have fully formed ideas at any moment for it to eventually become something amazing. So I alluded to the fact that you're nominated for the Polaris Prize. What What's the kind of experience been like as an artist during this period where, you know, you're now shortlisted for the Polaris? Like, has it brought new people to you? Have you noticed like an uptick in spins or you know, Spotify plays? I haven't been keeping track as carefully to that. So I don't know if it's necessarily like, you know, like really made me famous yet. (laughs) But no, it's like just the feeling alone. It just feels, it's just a feeling of excitement and fun, like to make a record like this that was so isolating in some moments and not really knowing how it was going to come out. And then you put something out and then it just exists and you're like, okay, now what? And then to get that kind of recognition months later, it just kind of like, I don't do it for that reason, but to get it is pretty sweet. <laughs> like I have to, I have to admit like it's, it feels amazing and feels really fun and just like fun to kind of give the record new life again. You're, you're creating it. Because you need to, but not necessarily with an eye to like how people will respond to it. But it's it's gratifying to have them to respond like that. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, if I got caught up in what everyone else thinks all the time, I don't think I would do half of the things that I do. <laughs> You'd be more cautious or like more self-conscious about it? I'm afraid <laughs> I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Like if, if it were up to me and I let my intrusive thoughts win, then... I probably wouldn't be making art at all because there's so many demon hamsters working in my brain from the minute I wake up just being like, are you sure? So I feel like I have to constantly just like fight them off and put them on their little wheel and keep them going over there and just to kind of move forward. So, but I have such a great community of people around me that encourage me and, and literally help me create the things that I want to create and do it with me. And that's what makes it uh, as fun and as fulfilling as it is for me. You've played some shows for, for this record. Uh, obviously these are the Winnipeg dates, you know, coming, coming up, but like in terms of audience response, have there been any surprises in terms of songs that people are especially into? Yeah. I mean like a song like Marigold, which is one of the shorter ones on the record that I wasn't really sure if I felt like bold enough to put it out there. Cause it really is like autobiographical, really putting it out there about my identity, about me not being in the church anymore, about me discovering the queerness inside of me and like all that kind of stuff. Um, I felt nervous. I didn't know how it would be received. And it's one of the best received songs. As soon as we started going on tour and playing it and I noticed how people reacted to it. I was like, okay, I'm okay. This is, it just gave me such a boost of confidence and, and joy and euphoria and love. Was there like, like a nervousness about like revealing yourself in that way? Yeah. And I mean, I always pride myself on like being honest and authentic and whatnot, but there are some things that also, regardless of how honest or authentic you are as an artist that you want to keep, for yourself and that you want to proclaim when you're ready or whatever. And, and I felt like, okay, I'm ready to talk about, to really talk about my identity more. 
and and it's terrifying it's terrifying and exhilarating it's it's both it's like feels scary to like jump off that ledge and wonder if people are going to catch you but I have such an again like a such a supportive crew around me and my fans are the most loving people I've ever encountered in my life and so I've just it, it just like gave me further confidence that I can dive deeper and people will uh, catch me. Are there songs that you've written and you've realized, oh, wait, I, I can't sing this every night. Like I can't be that. That revelatory on stage. <laughs> um, I mean, there are some songs that I've written that I just don't enjoy singing as much, but not necessarily for the the content. It's just like. Oh yeah, I don't I don't relate to this anymore and I don't even really like how I wrote it. So what? Like and there's only a couple songs like that in my repertoire that people are like, "Why don't you play this anymore?" and I'm like, "I don't like it." And that's about it. <laughs> sure enough. Well, on on the nights of at the, uh, Club Region, are you doing the album front to back or what's the plan for I'm putting a set together uh kind of with the concept of like we're going to go through like a 24 hour period together with, within the span of like an hour and 15 minutes. So it's kind of going from day to night to day again. And then throughout that, it's like the different songs that kind of suit those different times and to usher in those different times of day. So it's not necessarily from front to back, but everything on the new album is in the set in its own kind of special order. Sure enough. Well, before I let you go, Alexa, I want to get you to pick a track off of Powder Blue that we can play for listeners. If you have a reason why you're picking that song or an anecdote about it, uh, I'd love to hear that. Oh, well, I guess we could play Married by Elvis if that's your favorite one. Well, you don't have to do my favorite. I've played it on <laughs> on the show already. I, I always like to hear, you know, the artist's take on things or, you know. I mean, OK, I would play Marigold or Butterfly. Well, let's do let's both. play Marigold. We can okay, do both. We, we, we got a time for we both. both. Let's do both. Those ones that I feel like for me are the ones that are the most, like if there was like a um, thesis statement, like for the record, like those two are kind of like at the forefront for me of, of uh, vulnerability, self-discovery. Uh, and yeah, just kind of the thought that you're never too old to change your mind. Uh yeah, those those ones are kind of the most poignant for me and the ones that whenever I sing them, I, I I know that I'm in it no matter where I am. Well, two songs from Powder Blue because you've got two shows, Friday, September 22nd and Saturday, September 23rd at Club Regent. Alexa, thanks very much for taking some time to talk and congratulations on, on the success of the record and good luck with these two shows. Thank you very much. Sitting in the bleachers Waiting for my Chose myself. 
pianist and composer Matthew Shipp has a huge body of work, some of which is being reissued, and uh, he's always making new stuff as well. Intrinsic Nature of Shipp coming out of Mahakala Music, and he joins me by phone. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Um, my pleasure to have you on. I've uh, been a fan of yours for ages and, and really excited to get a chance to talk to you. I I wanted to ask a little bit about, because I was reading up on, on your, your early history, and you you were a classically trained pianist as, as a kid. You uh, talked in an interview I saw on Perfect Sound Forever about, you know, kind of having a, a repertoire of classical music. 
and I'm, I'm curious at what point you made the transition to, to jazz piano and, and how big a hurdle was it for you to kind of like move your head out of the classical brain and, and into the jazz brain? Right. Well, um, I made the transition to jazz around the age of 12. Um, I saw a special on TV on PBS, public broadcasting, um, of Nina Simone doing a concert. And the same week I saw a special about, or around the same week, Amar Jamal doing a concert, and I was very intrigued by that. Um, now, there were jazz records around the house before that. My, my mother um, had a pretty interesting record collection of various stuff. She was a very curious person. But I never really taken an interest, really, until I saw those two specials on PBS. Um, as far as moving out of the classical mindset into jazz, um, I don't know if it was that difficult because um, it's all mental and it's all, you know, I mean, you use the word mindset and that's the right word. It's, it's all a mindset. And um, I think I had a pretty, how could I put this, elastic or plastic uh, or elastic um, sense of different things. I might, you know, have not been kind of hypnotized by certain aspects of classical training that might make it more difficult to have the open, certain type of openness of mind to go into an improvisationally based music. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not claiming to be um, autistic or, or, or having like no mental blocks, but, but certain things, you know, specific things, I think I kind of did have no mental blocks about for whatever reason. And I think um, the paradigm of jazz piano improvisation was one of those things that I didn't have any mental blocks. So my classical training didn't get in the way in the same way I've seen it get in some people's way. And, and in fact, um, proved to be a um, an ingredient in the mix that was very important. And I've you know figured out a way to utilize it to my my best extent um, that I could without compromising being a jazz musician at all. You know, so um, so the hurdle wasn't was not that big. The classical training being an ingredient in the mix, in, in what way, like what, what things did you carry over or, or build on out of that classical training? Um, well, I think before, I, I think the first thing that needs to be realized is that, you know, classical music as we think of it now is a construct. I mean, I, I think when any classical closer is composing, um, they're just dealing you know, with, with creativity, whatever that is for them. So I have no idea what the mindset of a Beethoven or Chopin or Debussy was when they were doing it, because I'm not them and I'm not in their brain and, their, and I don't really know their culture. Um, but, I, you know, I, I tend to think that um, that whatever it was is a lot different and probably is being taught now. I mean, that's my assumption. Okay, start from that. And then B, the piano as a whole 
does come out of, um, in a sense, that tradition. So it's kind of hard to approach the piano with, without some type of classical training because it's, it, 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 you know, that that tradition in some ways, in some ways, has defined how we think of a of what the piano of what the instrument represents in society. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to escape that and. A lot of great jazz pianists had intense classical backgrounds. I'm, I'm assuming Art Tatum did. I never actually read about how he studied or practiced. Um, but, uh, you know, I know Bud Powell, Cecil Taylor. I mean, people think of Monk as extremely iconoclastic and, um, you know, t- pianist whose whole kind of sound world is rooted in his own technique that he created but yet you know you talk to his son or think you know and he talks about him practicing Bach or I mean I recall I think I recall something like that I mean I know he did like play parts of the classical repertoire for himself you know so anyway um um you know it's not that I I think most pianists you know go through some classical training I mean I'm not I'm not saying that that Monk ever trained in classical music to the point that he he could have been a classical pianist. But I I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think I do recall reading about him practicing some Bach stuff. You know, so my my only point is that I don't. It's not that unusual. Right. And I don't recall the exact where I read about that with Monk, but I it's, it's vaguely in the back of my subconscious mind. You mentioned that it was seeing uh, Nina Simone and Ahmad Jamal on, on PBS. Was there something about, like, the visual of it? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I think, especially with Nina Simone, or both of them. I mean, I mean, they both kind of exude this very black, like, kind of mystique, you know. And I think that's what initially got me. Um, uh, you know, they, and they both kind of, you know, Ahmad Jamal was cool, but Nina Simone was dark, <laughs> And I think the, I mean, the energy that that was coming from it was dark, you know. And I, I think that initially attracted my attention. Um, uh, you know, also, I mean, she's a heavily, I mean, both of them are heavily clean, um, trained classical pianists that were able to take whatever they learned from that and, and apply it in a black idiom. And you know, when, when, you know, I mean, I mean, they are exponents of a black idiom. I mean, you know, completely and utterly. So um, I found that intriguing, too, because I, I could hear, you know, the classical training they had. And also, but they both could, I think they could take any song and kind of put it in their idiom. I mean, Nina Simone could, you know, do a Stevie Wonder song. She could do a Bob Dylan song. She could do folk songs. And and they're all still like that Nina Simone idiom. And that's just something that, like, any artist that can take anything and make it their own to that extent. I mean, Stevie Wonder can actually do that. He could, you know, I mean, he, you know, he was recorded a Bob Dylan song. I mean, he can take anything. And when he does it, it's, it's just like, it's Stevie Wonder, no, no matter what the material was. And so I got that from her. I, I you know, I'm, I'm 12 years old at the time. I don't know how I articulated this in my mind, but, but these are things that kind of stuck with me. So on some level, I must've thought that, um, 
and I I kind of got that from Marjorie Moore too because uh, you know I I'm, I'm I get the sense that whatever he plays, it, it goes right to his very unique way of um kind of structuring his sound world. So it, it takes on his imprint and his fingerprint, no matter what it is. Um, but I, I the energy was a very kind of from both of them. Well, with Amar Jamal, it was cool. With her, it was dark. Um, and, but alive, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and so I that that's what I think drew me in. Right. No. Uh, also, that same week. I saw this special on CBS on this Russian woman who could do telekinesis. And I, I, that, you know, when I think back, that really had a huge influence on me. It's always, because I've always viewed myself as somebody who can um, superimpose my mind on the piano and morph it into a different sound object of sorts. And, um, you know, I, I, within a couple week period, I saw all three of those specials on PBS and I, it really like changed the whole course of my life. All three of those so TV, even though it has, you could look at it as not being a healthy thing for kids, if it's the right material, can have a positive effect. It certainly sounds like it uh, birthed quite a career. So uh, you were talking about, you know, especially with Nina, you know, playing someone else's songs and then like putting her own imprint on them. When it comes to, you know, tackling works from the songbook, is that kind of where you start from? Is it like finding the, the Matthew Shipness? Yeah, yeah, and sometimes with some songs I don't, you know. I mean, I, there are certain things I, I play, I've been playing them for years, and then somehow they do fall into my um, way of playing, and there's other things I play, and I, I just can't figure out how to make it not sound like, you know, cocktail music or, or whatever. But, but certain things do, for whatever reason, kind of certain songs in the songbook do fall within my way of playing um, and sometimes I had to search for that. Sometimes it just happens naturally. Sometimes it's a case of um, just having played the piece for years and it morphs its way into what is now my world. Um, and then sometimes it um, doesn't happen at all. And then sometimes, um, um, it, some, yeah, sometimes i got to really figure it out. Or sometimes I just... I, I just get completely surreal with it. I just go crazy on it and whatever, almost in a random fashion and almost whatever happens, happens. And that will be, you know, if I remember it, that will be how that song will go from now on because I, I had to take it out of its regular orbit as a, like kind of a regular sounding um, thing. And, and um, sometimes maybe the the random, random, randomness of of trying to do anything on it to make it not sound regular um, was the right thing to do. Yeah. Now, I mean, obviously, seeing these performers opens you up to jazz, but that doesn't necessarily like suggest that you're then going to become a composer and an improviser. At what point does that? enter the picture like rather than just you know playing jazz right, on right. the piano that um i'm not exactly sure the exact chronology of that but i i do remember at a pretty early age like i bought silent tongues um cecil taylor solo album because i just saw that photo of him in the record store and it was just like kind of captured me um and i was starting to get into coltrane pretty early 
and I, I actually understood Coltrane before I understood Charlie Parker. I remember um, like getting a love supreme really early, and I, I got it. You know, I, I, I understood where it was coming from. But the first time I heard Charlie Parker, I thought this, I was like, this is from outer space. Like, what's, what are these cats doing? You know? and, and, I mean, it's just kind of funny that Coltrane made a lot more sense to me initially than Charlie Parker did. I mean, I later became a Charlie Parker fanatic. But the first time I heard Saltinas, I didn't know what was going on. Um, but anyway, um, so, you know, it was a matter of just checking out everything. And then I was one of those kids that went to the library a lot. And so you re- read a lot of books. And, you know, history books present things in a very linear fashion. So um, I had some concept in my mind that, you know, jazz piano history is from whatever, from Art Tatum to um, maybe Nat Cole or something, to Bud Powell to, and Monk to Horace Silver to Bill Evans and um, Herbie Hancock to Cecil Taylor. You know, I mean, whatever. I, I had a very linear fashion in my head about, like, what the history of jazz piano is. And at some point, I self-declared to myself that I was going to be the next step after Cecil Taylor. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. However, a teenager, you know, words that or makes that decision. I decided what, whatever, like kind of like the evolution of the thing is, if you look at it in a linear fashion, which I've come not to accept those, even though that's a good way to, to kind of learn something that I don't really believe. I, I definitely don't believe that it evolves. I believe it just changes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, at some point, I decided whatever that thing is that Andrew Hill and Cecil Taylor is and Paul Blade do, um, I want to be considered like a next generation doing that. You know, So that decision was made before I even had the concept or the wherewithal to play in that way because when I was a kid, I was playing in a style somewhere between um, McCoy Tyner, Bill Evans, and Herbie Hancock. Um, but you know, I, my my heart was wanting to be in what's considered improvised music, and you know, I started to work to find a methodology to be able to do that. Yeah, I'd, I'd read that the Tyner kind of was a, a linchpin because of being kind of you grew up close to Philadelphia, and obviously right. that you mentioned Love Supreme. He's obviously pretty prevalent on on that record. That 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 was kind of an early early adoption, but then yeah, it sounds like you kind of. I don't want to say went past him, but went a different direction. Right, right. Um, yeah, you can't go past this, like the solo, the two solos he takes on "I Love Supreme" or masterpiece construction. <laughs> you don't go past that. You just go somewhere else. Yeah. When it comes to because uh, uh, you, you know you're talking about like learning from and and developing on uh, as far as like that linear trajectory of history versus you know not necessarily the way like creative processes happen. You're about to reissue a record at the same time as dropping a new record. Do you listen to your old stuff? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I every once in a while, I'll go through and listen to old stuff just to kind of assess where I'm at now and where I was there. And, you know, it's um, always very interesting because they're a different you. I mean, you know, I mean, let alone, like that album, I think it's 1990, it was recorded, or 91 or 90, I think recorded in, um, let alone, you know, 30, 
years ago. I mean, you're a different person two or three years down the line. And, you know, of course, there's some imprint of you there that you would recognize. But, it, you know, I mean, if you look at a photo of yourself when you're 17 or 18 and you're 60 uh, or 62 as I am, um, you know, it's a different person. I mean, you know, albeit obviously something holds holds it together that and that's a very interesting thing because on one level it's memory that makes you say that that person in the photo at 18 or 20 is the same person at 60 i mean if if you i i'm just assuming if somebody had complete amnesia and started life anew with a new um identity you know are you that same person in that i mean i don't know I'm, i'm asking so well, this is that that ship of Theseus thing, right? Where like if you keep replacing boards, is it still the same ship? Oh right, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, and it's like I as never... a person, right? Like our our atoms change and our our experiences right. change us. Like, are we still the same person? Yeah, yeah. Every cell in your body is changes within a couple of years. So, um, so listening to old albums, like looking at an old organ, I mean, but it, it's fascinating because um, you tend to always think that you're on your best stuff now, but maybe that was the best the statement that was meant to be made at the time period and it's um so you kind of got to get yourself out of the way and maybe you have improved but maybe that statement was so meant to be made at the time that there's no there, you can't look at it in an evolutionary way where you're better now you're, you're different and that's what was meant to be at the time i mean you you i mean if you listen back to old stuff you kind of got to get yourself out of the way because um you know, because we always get in our own ways. <laughs> right. That's a that's a tall order. Yeah, well, that's almost impossible, but um, but that's the goal. <laughs> in listening back, you know, it's always interesting to listen to old stuff. Um, and you know, when I listen, like, I, like when I play solo or when I play trio, or if I play duo with Evil Perlman, which I do a lot, or if I'm you know in the David Ware band or the Roscoe Mitchell band, actually, each of those pianists are completely different personalities. Um, even though they're all me, and I, that, that's you know, I don't think of myself as a chameleon, um, in the sense that David Bowie is a chameleon, you know, where he completely changes personality in mm-hmm. his albums. But still, the, the pianists in all those situations are, are different pianists, and um, I, I'm, I'm trying to still trying to figure out how I did did that. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, obviously, in the trio, you're a band leader, right? Like, right. It's, a, it's a different dynamic than when you just Matthew Ship solo on stage. I have to imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So then, going back and you know, re-listening to Circular Temple, which is about to be reissued here, uh, like, are are you listening to it to hear what Matthew Ship the pianist did? Or are you listening to hear that interplay with William and Wit? Like, what's what's going through uh, your well, head? Well, the, the interplay because that 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 trio and a lot of my groups is about the interplay. Uh, so yeah, I, I, when I listen back, which I actually haven't listened to that for a while, but even though it's being reissued, when I listen back, I I I, I do listen from what, where my vocabulary was, but but just the group dynamic is more important to me because um that's what makes those projects. I mean, obviously my my language drives it, and it's my group. Um, but I'm I'm just I'm I'm listening for. I, I guess the best way to put it is for the decisions that were made. Listening back to a record like that, like, can you remember the, like the creative process and, and how you three arrived at that album? Like, like, do you, do you remember some of the, 
thought process on, or on like that discussions? Because it was my first CD. You know, I had one LP out before that with Rob Brown on Cadence. Um, but I, I do remember um, that because it, the whole process was very fresh mm. for me. You know, I mean, consequently, I, you know, I'm on a few hundred CDs, so some of them, I, let alone remembering the thought process, I don't even remember, you know. <laughs> but that I do because it was so kind of fresh in my career. And I, I don't remember the recording session, but I do remember the music. Right. Now, the intrinsic nature of Ship, which is the, the new record that's coming out, um, I'm curious about kind of like, because the title suggests like you're kind of getting to the heart of yourself in some way. Right. It, was that like an intentional thing? Like, where is this kind of like an emblem? Well, that, that's or? always the goal. I mean, you know, I, I'm a big boxing fan and, and Archie Moore, um, great light heavyweight champion who was, became a trainer and kind of, a, he always said that, you know, you're always, that, that the, the, the idea of training in boxing is you're always trying to solve the mystery and you never do. But the thing is, is just to keep getting deeper and deeper into trying to solve the mystery. And, and, you know, it's the same here. It's like, um, um, now, the, what, what you said there is very important because if one could, you talk about all the training you do and all that, um, if one could theoretically get to the essence of themselves, which theoretically should be the easiest thing in the world to do because it's yourself, but yet it's the hardest thing in the world to do because enculturation does take over, you know, pretty much the second you come out of the womb, a baby internalizes what's expected from them in the environment and and how so uh, so basically we're all trained out of ourselves from the second we're born, but but being that that's your natural state of being, theoretically it should be the easiest thing, but it's yet the hardest thing in the world to do, and um, and all the quote training is actually meant to give you enough courage, um, confidence, and relaxation where you actually can tap into your, your, your quote, true self, or as Emerson calls it, the aboriginal abyss of real being. Um, but yet that's the rarest thing that ever happens, and it should be the easiest because that's what you have before all this stuff is dumped on you. Um, but the process of, of becoming an improviser or, or a composer slash improviser is, is, you know, a continual trying to brainwash. And I don't use brainwash in, in the negative sense. I mean, wash your brain of, of all the um, elements of culture that, that have been thrust upon you. And to be able to, I mean, you're not going to reinvent the elements because the elements are the elements. They're there in nature. But there's some original geometry of your brain that allows you, in a childlike fashion, I mean, in the same sense in the Bible where Jesus says that, if, you know, if you want to be like the kingdom of God, you had to be reborn. Or, you know, he talks about how only children, you had to have the innocence of a child to, so, um, to discover the kingdom. So in that same sense, to, to recapture that innocence, um, you know, it's it's, a, it's 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 just really difficult because we're just trained not to to not trust our own instincts, and so you listen to some like Thelonious Monk, who um, had no fear of of 
playing his the geometry of his brain on the instrument. And, you know, that's where you want to get to. And that's in a continual um, purging. You know, I mean, Catholics talk about purgatory, going to purgatory. And it's not going to hell, but you go to purgatory before you get purged, before you go to heaven. So if you take that out of the religious context and and put it in, you know, uh, you you, you can maybe say that we're in purgatory. You're completely trying to purge all the... um, negative things um or you know or negative constraints and and kind of get to that pure essence of of who you are or whatever energy field or frequency vibration that you are and then transmit that directly on an instrument now that sounds you know woo woo that sounds i could even sound new age i don't know but whatever but that that that's what it is and that is really difficult because when you say it to a young person you know they're dealing with an existential black hole like what does it mean to have an original language on an instrument you know that's that's like you just sit somebody down in an instrument what is that supposed to mean how are they going to tell all their teachers well i do it my way you know and they actually would be wrong to do it because there is um something to be said about having a, a education within the arts that's quote cultural, culturally accepted i mean there there is something to say before you jump off into the abyss but i mean that's what is what is the jumping off to the abyss when should you feel to have the courage to do that all these are not answerable in words and every you know for every like Thelonious monk that gets there it's his own unique situation that happened where they had a con- extreme balance of understanding tradition, but yet having the trust in their own intrinsic nature to um, assert that upon us. You know, not in a, like, this is me. I mean, they're just doing their thing, you know. And um, so anyway, the, the, the title of that comes from the continual quest to kind of get to that very pure idea. Yeah, I, I'm coming back to that thing you said about, you know, the, the Christ notion of the child. And, and like, I think about like some of the things we hold dearest about, like kind of childhood is, is like a sense of wonder and like fearlessness, not knowing limits yet. And right. like the joy of play, like pure play. And those all seem to be kind of things that I think would serve you well if you're an improviser, right? That you know, exactly. No, I mean, those, are the, those are the things that should be driving you or not. I mean, those are the things that you should be um in league with yet yeah so before i let you go matthew i want to get you to pick a track off of the new record intrinsic nature of ship that we can play for listeners and if you have a reason why you're picking that song in particular or an anecdote about it i'd love to hear that um i don't really have i mean that's really hard for me i know this is always the um, hardest question i ask artists yeah yeah because because to me the album is a whole i mean even you know that there's songs it forms a suite so you thought so, of this um, as like a song cycle in some sense? Like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really I'm gonna leave that up to you. <laughs> Pick your favorite shit. <laughs> yeah. All right, well we'll do that. Matthew, thanks very much for taking some time to talk and uh, congratulations on the on the reissue of Circular Temple and on, on the the release of Intrinsic Nature Ship. Thank you very much.
Back here on Thank God, it's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. Right before the break from the brand new album, The Intrinsic Nature of Ship, that's Matthew Ship with Tune Into It. Got one last interview for you. I talked to Merrick Tyler and Ryan Beatty of the band Wayfinding, who are coming to play the Park Theater on the 25th, opening for Destroyer. And uh, before we get to that, Mirror Tree with a track called Carefree. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.
All right. Well, coming to town on the 25th of September, opening for Destroyer, wayfinding the new project from well it's is it a super group would you guys call it a super group there's like all of you have significant projects outside of this it, it feels very uh super groupy or what do you what do you refer to yourselves as uh it's it's a good hang like it's a good it's a it's a good friends having a good hang laughing about stupid jokes <laughs> really so <laughs> did it kind of grow out of just hanging <clears throat> it's it we grew out of America. I've played together for, uh, I don't know, that are part of two decades now in various groups. And we decided uh, we'd always sort of wanted to have a project that was that was just our own and not because he's played in, in dr drums in my band uh, previously, but we wanted a band that was like ours. And then when COVID happened, we kind of decided to do to start this project. And it started as like a kind of, you know, uh, a remote recording project and then when we went to try to do it we were doing some of the songs live then we we brought Matthew and uh, and Cassie on board for that and sort of how it came about were you recording like like playing together separately like on zoom together or like sending each other stems or like what was that we initially had like a set like a couple sessions where actually Matthew and Merrick came out to a studio I work at in Vancouver and we did some stuff there. But then, yeah, subsequently it was like sending, sending like stems back and forth to finish the, the EP. Now, obviously that was born out of necessity with, you know, not being able to be together because of COVID, but was that an experience you'd had sending pieces of songs before? Like, was that an, like, had you pieced together a record that way at any point no, otherwise? Not in any real capacity. Like, sent demos and stuff or like played on friends you know tracks and things like that but not on an entire record nope. so what kind of learning yeah. process was that in in terms of songwriting for you like did it change things like did you find that you were writing different songs because of the, the methodology yeah yeah like for me the drum beats changed because you're not sitting in a studio trying to get the perfect take um the you, you have a different perspective on what you're doing you're not you don't you're not don't have the perspective of looking into someone's eyes wondering if that's a good take a good take or if that's a good piece you you have a bit more time to reflect on it so you you sit with it a bit more you kind of yeah it it becomes it, it's just a different process altogether um maybe i would equate it to uh it's almost it was it was slower for me like it was like it was i don't know it's like uh reading a book as opposed to watching the movie it was a lot it was a, for me it was it was just a different experience of of creating something yeah so kind of taking out the immediacy of you know being in the studio with someone else and and like digesting things as you create them yeah you could you could send say uh ryan go ryan sent something and he's like i hear something what do you think um and then he would attach maybe like a, a reference point to it like um you know, a, a, another drum sound or a, a maybe a song or a, a lyric. It, you just had different ways. You had to figure out a different way to convey the emotion of what you're trying to get to. And that was really interesting. I I think like the, the from the get-go, the process of this record has been a lot of, I will, I've always been, I've been sending like the full lyrics to Merrick too, which is kind of an interesting approach just to be like, here's the, you know, here's the emotional content of this song. And it, 
yeah, like he's saying to latch on to like what you know to to uh, to be to have that in that sort of in mind when he's you know when we're writing parts or doing things just like I don't know yeah it's like just the yeah like a lot of times for me like you when you're making an album you're creating album writing an album a lot of times you spend a lot of time in the basement you know just kind of working through ideas and so there is a instantaneous connection that you have with your friends that good hang that you're having in the basement laughing about jokes and you know being very instantaneous improvisational almost this wasn't that not for the ep what we're doing now is more rooted in that traditional environment but the ep definitely allowed us time to reconnect in a different way i think it allowed everyone around the world to reconnect in a different way and that definitely came out in this work yeah i was going to ask because i understood that you guys were working on a, on a new record right now you're in the process of it did that experience with the EP and having to do things differently shape any of the dynamics of going into this like full length at all? Like, d did you learn something from that process that you, you took away from it? Or is it, let's just kind of go back to how we used to make records. I don't think it's going back because we, I mean, I've made many records with Merrick, but I've never made a record with Matthew and Cassia before. So this is a new, it's yeah, it's a new experience for me. And like, just sort of feeling out how everybody does things and and really like yeah it's it's I mean I've been in a lot you know uh, I've either been a uh, hot sort of you know a hired participant or like a you know someone brought in to play for my guitar playing on records or I've led my own concrete record but this this album being a very you know four four piece sort of like democratic band is like a very it's a refreshing and new experience for me right now, which are, we're, yeah, we're currently tracking right now. Yeah. Ryan, you mentioned, you know, sending the completed lyrics to Merrick and, and like kind of setting the tone of the song lyrically. Uh, yeah. Now that you're all like working on this record together, are you still the one setting the tone or are all of you kind of collaborating on the tone? Well, Cassia is bringing some songs for this album. <clears throat> um so yeah no i mean it's definitely more collaborative musically like but but it's always important for me to to like i don't know i'm a big lyric person and uh i think it's important to like have the thematic elements present in people's minds when they're writing you know arrange, when we're arranging a song because it can definitely like you know there there's there's connections that will might otherwise not have been made uh and it's just i don't know it's just something it's not important for everyone but it's something that i try to do i really like the the intersection between cassia and ryan songs as they're from two different perspectives and my goal is when playing a song either live or in the studio a lot of times i'll close my eyes and just it's like acting like you just try and find the scene and and generate that emotion of what what's happening and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but it's there's perspective that i really love leaning into and sometimes the perspective is quite maybe it's lonely okay so what's what does a lonely drum piece sound like and then you start kind of going from there and sometimes the loneliest drum beat is is a single kick drum 
sometimes the loneliest drum beat is like just a big wall of sound but you kind of have to find the emotion in what they're saying to generate the sound to support what their story which i really love doing yeah so is the notion they, sorry go ahead uh i was gonna ask Merrick, like are you yeah. trying to get outside of your own head as a as a musician and think character based like this is the character within the song so who who am i as a drummer within that song i think you can i would say let me reframe this another way and to take it into like an indigenous perspective my mom says when we offer protocol uh to people that we're working with or asking for knowledge or honoring for information we are doing that for our own process to remove ego so that we can sit around and talk without having to like talk from our ego so i really like that approach because it removes me trying to do a tasty lick or a certain pattern or to to hit a certain note or whatever it might be i have to think about it well i've offered protocol i'm here to to support the the narrative of the song and it's not it's not about me in any way so i'd really try and like sit in that in that chair and for me I really love that. It's a, it's a very comfortable place for me, but it's also, it is, it's, it's a bit vulnerable because you kind of have to just go with it a bit because it's really easy to just play what you've always done, but you got it. You got to make yourself comfortable. And I, I think adding to that, I think the, the greatest strength that I'm experiencing right now or greatest strength that you can have making a record is ability to have that uh, openness to be able to, if you bring, you know, bringing these songs and, you know, there's a, there's a riff or something that is that is in my mind like leading the song but when we start working on it maybe that's not the focal point and it's like just being able to let go of those ideas in in and remove yourself your ego from the the arranging and letting the song kind of come out is going to be it's going to be you know more fruitful in the end and it's it's an interesting it's a good experience You've, you've all, you know, recorded with other people, like you said, you said, Ryan, you know, you've been a supporter on other people's records. It's not always that you're the you know, band leader. Does that removing your ego, is that something you've learned through all of those processes or is that something that you've had to develop and then bringing it to this project? It, in making like my own records, a lot of the time I, I, I hit walls, you know, like Merrick's saying, where you're just like, you're familiar, things seem too familiar with your own, like, you know, it's just your own hand on something and uh and sometimes i feel like if that's the case i just will like i i, I like using like random approaches to things you know sometimes you just yeah. just to like get you know not use your own uh whatever your musicality but let something random happen to like to arrange the song and in some cases like i played in a band a bandmate years ago had written all these parts for a record and was playing them and was like this isn't working can you just play these parts i just want your hands on the record and i just played his parts and it was completely you know had a different different uh spirit to it and like made the made the song another thing that i want to just kind of go around on is thinking back to the time of covid we were given a new currency of time you know we how did we we're going to spend that time for me it was about spending time in the basement collaborating with friends doing what we normally do you're a very comfortable place safe place to be in this time had you know how do we're going to spend that time i didn't 
play a lot of live drums, physically couldn't. I couldn't go to a studio. So we had to figure out a new approach. And again, going back to your question to Ryan about collaborating and having a new approach for me as a drummer, I had to learn how to work on a computer, learning the new skills of recording, uh, beat making, sampling, all of that. And that really influenced the first album I, I noticed, or the first EP. Now we're back in a studio and I find myself aching for those some, the, some of those sounds combined with the live sound of drums in a studio. So it's been that part I'm very excited about in this environment, the new collaboration, both with people, but environment. Speaking of live sound, coming to Winnipeg on the 25th, as I mentioned at the top, uh, it's an it's an opening set. It's a supporting set. So time is limited. Uh, are you playing any of the new stuff or is it just strictly the EP or how are you guys building a set as an opener? We're, we'll have some new some of these new songs in the mix. Straight up. Yeah. There's a couple of bangers that I'm very excited about. <laughs> I know that Dan's playing on the acoustic guitar, but we're going to, you know, we'll do it. We'll do our best. It's like a salt and pepper gig. You, you guys bring like some serious heat and then he'll quieten things down after. Yeah. Except for his wit. His wit will be sharp as always. This is true. He was an early fan uh, of the group, as I understand it. Is that, uh, how did how did Dan get hip to the wayfinding? Like, did you send him some songs? Uh, well, he, uh, the studio I work at in Vancouver is actually him and his wife, Sydney's studio. Um, that during COVID, like a bunch of people in the area lost their spaces because, you know, they're like studio spaces. You couldn't afford to keep them. And Dan and Sydney have been, you know, successful and they're gracious enough to share their, you know, their facilities with, with their friends. And, uh, so that's where we did the initial sort of tracking. So he was very much, um, yeah, he's was surprised of this this project from the get-go yeah he's been a he's been a, a champion both with the band and with the community that's around him cool yeah before i let you go i want to get you guys to pick a track off the ep that we can play for listeners uh if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about it uh something to give folks a taste of what they'll see on the 25th you want to talk about it um but I, I think it's bad blood um, it was the, like, again, going back to the process, Ryan sent me these lyrics. I heard a man who is coming to terms with, with a, a narrative that we've all been fed, a Canadian narrative that we've all been fed, that he was now challenging both from a perspective and also from a learned experience. And it excited me terribly. And when we started writing the song, I think you hear that come out, that it's a bit ferocious. Uh, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit, uh, put your foot through the door. Uh, what's going on here that I just love. All right. Well, we'll give that one a listen. Uh, September 25th at the park theater wayfinding opening for destroyer, uh, American Ryan, thanks very much for taking some time out of your recording process to talk and safe travels on the road. If, if I thanks. could just quickly say hello to someone in Winnipeg, that would be fantastic. By all means. Okay. So, uh, just a big, big hello uh, to Boogie the Beat for the new album, Cousins. Uh, a big hello to uh, to my boy, um, uh, Alan Grayeyes, uh, and his whole family for all the success that they have, and uh, to Morgan Hamill. That's it. Hi, hi. Perfect. We've been Can playing I, that Boogie the Beat on this show, so uh, yeah. happy. Can I'm, grateful, I'm grateful to you. 
Awesome. Well, thanks again, guys. And uh, again, safe travels. Thanks a lot.